good. I'm uh, really privileged to do it. Move me to the center. Yeah. Sure. That's a little uncomfortable to be in the center, though. Okay. How about? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Thanks. Thanks, David. So, as Pete mentioned, I'm Joel, and I am really honored to be here today. And for those of you who don't know me, and it's really great to see a lot of new faces that I haven't seen before, and that means that there's a lot of new people coming to Restoration. Uh, my wife Stephanie and I have been at Church of the Cross now for about eight and a half years. And my kids, Jack and Corey and Wesley. Uh, are, are also happy members of, of Church of the Cross. Uh, I grew up in Southern California. I uh, went to Biola University, uh, majored in Bible there, and then I went to Trinity Divinity School in Chicago, sort of uh, with the mind that I'd love to teach someday. Uh, God had other plans, and I've now been with uh, a little grocery store called Trader Joe's for 16 years as a manager, um, or as an assistant manager. And so it's been great to see how the Lord has, has provided for that, and it's, it's a great job. We do feel a special kinship to restoration uh, since we live about a mile from here. <laughs> so I could leave this morning, you know, only a couple minutes before I had to be here, which was great. Uh, in spite of the proximity, we, we still feel really called at Church of the Cross, but uh, we, we really are glad to be able to be here this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll look at God's word. Father, we thank you for James. We thank you for his directness and for his, at times, even harshness towards us, which we need. And I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what he has to say, and that you would give us true blessing and that we could be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was Reading this a lot over the last couple weeks, this passage in James, I was thinking, for some reason it came to me, I started thinking about siblings. And you might not know, well, why, why is that? Well, I'll get to that. But I will say that, you know, the phrases that we use, they're like brothers, or she's like a sister to me, they ring true to us because they're either true, or we want them to be true. We, and we do feel a certain sense that siblings can be really, really close friends and can share these deep connections through life. Sibling relationships can also be complicated. I've recently been reminded by a few people that are close to me, including my own little sister, how hard it can be to be a secondborn. The problem that I, as a firstborn, you know, haven't really personally experienced. And the scriptures are packed with these complicated sibling relationships, right? We have Cain and Abel, really complicated. Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau. All 12 of Jacob's kids, sons. And then his daughter, Dina, who has her own difficult path. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. What a great... Think about the sibling relationship and how that works itself out in Exodus and beyond. David and all his brothers. The youngest of all these huge brothers. And then we go to the New Testament, and you have Peter and Andrew. Andrew is the person who introduces Peter to Jesus. Mary and Martha. James and John, who become disciples of Christ. And what got me here, if you hadn't already thought of it, is that traditionally speaking, James, the author of this book, is Jesus' little brother. What would that be like? If Jesus was James' big brother, he probably saw through Jesus' teaching some of the different tones that Jesus would take with his people, right? 
So for instance, in Luke 10, when Mary and Martha are, when Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house, he takes a very gentle, corrective tone with Martha. When Martha's worried about getting the dinner ready and Mary's sitting at his feet, he's corrective, but he's very gentle. On the other hand, in Matthew 12, when he calls the teachers broods of vipers, you can't really nuance that. It's pretty clear. So perhaps James had listened to his older brother and admired his ability sometimes to just cut to the chase. James is not necessarily always big on nuance, and that's a real gift to us. Now, I don't know if I would like it if the whole Bible was like James. I like some of the stories and some of the other you know, parables, but sometimes we really, really do need brutal honesty and clarity. And that is a gift that James does give us. Whenever I teach about the Bible, application of the word is always, of course, you know, one of the big things that we have to think about. How do we apply this? But with James, it's hardly ever the question is, what do we have to apply? It's like, how do you do it? Because it's pretty clear what we're supposed to do, but it's really tough to know how. So let's go to the reading. So he's standing on the, the shoulders, James, as of great other teachers in, in, in Israel. And there's so many times in this passage where you can see echoes of his traditions and his, his, his upbringing in a t- as a student of the, the Hebrew scriptures. But we begin in verse 16 with the word for. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Well, what's the for? For. Well, that's because in the verses right before it, in 13 through 15, he, James sets up a contrast between true wisdom, in verse 13, and earthly, unspiritual wisdom, what James calls demonic wisdom, another nuance, right? Demonic wisdom. This harkens all the way back to the first few verses of James in verse 5 of chapter 1, when James implores his audience to seek wisdom from God who gives it generously. So, but vile practice and disorder begin with the earthly wisdom that he talks about. This wisdom is from below. One commentator I read said, it takes no account of God whatsoever. It approaches life as though the Almighty doesn't exist. Verse 16 makes clear that out of this wisdom comes jealousy and selfish ambition. Drives people apart, produces strife. One other commentator I read, read a great, wrote a great line. He said, there's a kind of person who is undoubtedly clever, but he has an acute brain and a skillful tongue, but effect, the effect he has in any community, in any church, in any group is to make trouble. Drive people apart, foment strife, and make trouble and disturb relationships. And I know for me when I see that, not only do I think, think of other people, but I think of things about myself where I do that, when I foment strife, and when I fan the flames when it doesn't need to be. So with this really, really stark kind of wisdom here, we have this beautiful contrast. It starts in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's almost like a breath of fresh air after where we've been. Contrast is stark, and the wisdom from above is characterized by these eight great words. First, pure. This word has the idea of being clean, 
somebody who could, whereas the idea of worldly wisdom as somebody who can try to approach God on their own, it's almost like this pure wisdom, it can bear God's scrutiny because it comes to him out of purity. Peaceable, right? Relationships with other people. The word gentle, being respectful of other people and of their feelings. Open to reason. So, not stubborn. Being able to listen to other people. Full of mercy. And mercy is a full word. It's a great word, right? The Greek concept of mercy usually denotes somebody who, who has pity for somebody who has been unjustly suffering, right? But what do you, what's the Christian view of mercy? The Christian view of mercy is a mercy for a person for whom they've brought trouble on themselves. And so that's part of what characterizes this heavenly wisdom. Good fruits. A very James-ish reminder that action has to accompany this wisdom. Good fruits. He talks a lot about that. It has to be impartial. And it has to be sincere without hypocrisy. Such gentle, lovely words. And they're matched only by the metaphor of verse 18 that harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Harvest, I think my first picture in my head is Thanksgiving, you know, this abundance of food and, and peace and well-being. And beyond that, I think that to my mind that James, in this whole passage, as a first century Jewish Christian, is probably thinking about the word shalom a little bit here. This big picture of peace and the concept of shalom in the Old Testament is not merely just peace as we see it, but it's this overall sense of wellness and well-being when things are properly ordered. One need only look at Genesis 1 to see this. All you have to see is how well everything seems to be working together and functioning well. And though the word good is used over and over in Genesis chapter 1 instead of shalom, the overall picture is shalom and proper functioning. And I think that James is drawing on this here in his mind. He's taking the things he's learned and he's using it in this way. And I think, in order to sh- I think he's doing it in order to show how shalom can also be pursued in relationships with people, not just the overall creation. So we see this constantly in James. We see in the beginning of chapter 3 that I think Rick, uh, Father Rick spoke on last week is the taming of the tongue. And the main problem with the tongue is that it's destroying relationships with other people. Proper works towards God. In, in chapter 2, he talks about how the, one of the ways we show our faith is through works. And in the testing of faith that we see right away at the beginning of James. How would you like to start a letter like James does? Hello, and consider it joy when you go through trials. <laughs> That's how he starts his letter. So having established this battle between heavenly and worldly wisdom, James spends the rest of, his, of this lectionary reading first admonishing his audience, and then at the end giving him a great statement of comfort in verse 6. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James acknowledges the war of passions in the believers to whom he is writing. If pleasure is the policy of this life, what will follow? says, you desire and do, 
and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on passions. So the desire leads to murder and quarreling. Murder is a strong concept. But really, all we have to do is look around us in our world. And while we might not personally be seeing these kind of murder in, in our personal lives, just watch the evening news and you can see the violence in our world and as well as the quarreling. There's one thing that we can see on the news, it's quarreling. So by the end of verses 2 and in th- verse 3, James seems to clarify that there is a right kind of desire that people are ignoring. But because of how they're asking for it, it ends up being sort of dead on arrival. They don't get it. If we ask for something from God to do our passions and to go for our avarice, James says he will not give it. It reminds me of Psalm 37.4. It says, delight, the, delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. So in this case, you're not delighting in the Lord, and so he's not giving you the desire of your heart. Because in this case, the desire of your heart would be bad for you. <laughs> I think about the phrase, it's a pretty well-known phrase in our culture, follow your heart, right? And, you know, I think that on a gut level, a lot of times it works, but... Think about your heart sometimes, and think about if you all have always, if I always, follow, I'll speak for myself, if I always followed my heart, it wouldn't lead in good places. And so James then in verse 4, another subtle statement, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, of course, he's speaking more about a spiritual infidelity. But I will say that this is a metaphor that's used a lot, especially in the Old Testament by the prophets, of using the the metaphor of adultery to characterize the unfaithfulness of the people. And he ends of, of this, you know, I think about especially, you know, something like, you know, the book of Hosea, for instance. Constantly in the book of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it's all over the place because it's a very, very apt metaphor for the, in, the infidelity. And then, he, of course, he ends this, this verse with this really, really harsh teaching that friendship with the world is enmity toward God. The other thing I was thinking about bringing it back to how I started is how's James drawing on his big brother's teaching? And I think about the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus tells us that if you have anger in your heart, you have murdered somebody in your heart. If you you have lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. And I think there's an element here where I feel like James is seeing something that his Lord says is that the heart is what's really, really important here. Verse 5 when it says, uh, do, you not suppose to, do you not do suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
It's a little cryptic because it's not actually ever found directly in the Hebrew scriptures. So we're not exactly sure where James is drawing this quote from. But we do know that verse 4 and verse 5 are really, really making that case. That God is jealous in a holy sense, of course. And he won't tolerate infidelity in us. Where does that leave us? Kind of kind of stark. Well, verse 6, it's like, again, kind of like how verse 18 with that harvest of righteousness is so beautiful. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So again, he draws from the scriptures of his own youth to find the answer for what do we do about this rampant, you know, infidelity in our own hearts and what he gives his people. This is a quote from Proverbs 3.34. And in the, uh, the version I read, when you go to uh, Proverbs 3.34 in the uh, English Standard Version, the word mercy is actually translated favor in the Old Testament. And I think that gives a really, really good picture into what grace is about. Grace unmerited favor that God gives us. Grace is given to the humble, to those who know their place before God, not people that are overinflated with pride. He gives us this wonderful, amazing grace to be able to have good hearts towards him. So again, like I said at the beginning, it's not the what, it's the how. <laughs> How do we do this? What, what do we, how do we approach God with, with, with these hearts that are at times at war with each other, like he talks about in verse 1, the passions are at war with each other? Well, I can speak from personal experience, and I'm sure many of you could, that God does give wisdom to those who desire it. The trick is, where is your heart? And the main issue to me is one of self-examination. I cannot tell you how many times I've asked God for something and didn't get what I wanted. But then came to see with some more time how bad it would have been if I had gotten what I had asked for. That's wisdom. It's part of what he gives. So the true call, I think, that James seems to be making here is for change of our hearts. How we need pure hearts. And how oftentimes our hearts are far from pure. One of my favorite hymns growing up, it was one of my father's favorite hymns, and one of my favorites is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. So you say the first line, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. What's the next line? Anybody? Tune my heart to sing your praise. Right? We still need to sing. Still need to use the instruments God has given us, right? But He's the one who, thinking of my daughter and her, my son, their violin and their cello, who adjusts your heart, adjusts it to the so that He can get the tune out of it that He wants. Sometimes this happens miraculously. There have been a few times in my life where I've seen a sin or a problem go away almost miraculously, I, I, and it's amazing to think that it did. 
But unfortunately, or maybe in our sense, unfortunately, but maybe not in God's sense, fortunately, he uses a lot of other things too, and sometimes it's a lot longer, and he uses things like spiritual disciplines and trials, which James, again, opens his epistle with, to slowly but surely tune our hearts to him. And while we should heed the, the sternness of James's tone, let's not forget that he ends with this admonition, focusing on God's grace, an attribute of God that is by nature generous and lavishes his people. After all, he learned from his brother and, and Lord of God's holiness, as well as his nearness and compassion. And then we're, we are Jesus' brothers and sisters. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about how he became the firstborn of many brethren. So we can also look up to our big brother and look up to him and for his example, because he came to the world with a pure wisdom. I read a story this week about a young child who had had an accident, was taken to the hospital. He had grown up in a large family. His family was impoverished. His hunger was very rarely satisfied. There was never enough to go around. And so whenever he would sit down at the dinner table and his mom would bring him a glass of milk, his mom would always say, you need to share with two of your brothers. So he's had this accident and he goes to the hospital and after the nurse makes him comfortable in his bed, she brings him a large glass of milk. The boy eyes it and asks the nurse timidly, how much can I have? The nurse assured him that not only could he have it, but that there was plenty more where it came from. So it is with God's grace. It is both inexhaustible and constantly available to us. Pray. God, we thank you for this grace. We need it. And I'm thankful for the ways you've shown it to you, to, uh, to me, to my, and to your people. And we pray that as we listen to the teachings of James, that you would continue to tune our hearts to you so that we may be able to approach you and please you with godly and holy hearts. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Please stand.